If you're enjoying the show and can't wait to hear more episodes, you can binge listen the entire season ad-free right now on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com headlong and use promo code headlong. Hey there, before we start, just know this episode contains mature content. Previously on Surviving Y2K. We ran into quite a few John the Baptists and quite a few Elijahs. In fact, quite a few Elijahs. People who thought they were Elijah. Yeah. And they were reincarnated as Elijah to bring on the last days. What, um, what, what did you do on New Year's Eve? Well, I just wanted to wait it out. I thought there would be issues. You did? Oh, yeah. On December 31st, we were sleeping outside. Slept outside. We had the radio on, and we were listening. We were expecting the end of the world. You know, I was checking the news, and I think I opened up a beer. I was just so excited to stand up and say, look at me. I was right, and everyone was wrong. Episode 4, New Year's Eve. There's an island in the Pacific, a couple thousand miles south of Hawaii, right on the edge of the international dateline. And because of that, the people there, of all the people on the planet, see the very first ray of sun of each new day on Earth. And on December 31st, 1999, they are the first to welcome the new millennium. This is them when midnight arrives. The Kiribati people dancing in skirts woven from palm fronds on a beach in the dark, a blazing bonfire reflected in their eyes. It's prime evil. And of course, it's being shot by a camera guy in saggy cargo shorts who zaps it to the satellite truck, which pings it to the Jumbotron in Times Square and across the world. So we can all feel a little primeval too. One down, 23 hours to go. Up till now, this has been all about the end of the world. Coders predicting the worst, survivalists champing at the bit, true believers counting the days, and me bringing it on myself. Well, we're halfway through this season. We climbed up the hill, and now we slide down the other side, where all those endings, they'll become beginnings. Now it's all about what comes next for myself and the people we've met so far, when the end we were waiting for didn't come. But this episode, this is New Year's Eve. In the next 24 hours, the millennium will move across the planet like the very end of a wave on that island, washing over six billion New Year's Eves. Six billion barfy nights out or lonely nights in or brand new beginnings. Today, we're gonna focus on three of those New Year's Eves. Three New Year's Eves and the people in them. Each would be an attempt at a fresh start, a clean slate and none would turn out like they were supposed to. I'm Dan Taberski. This is Surviving Y2K. Our first New Year's Eve is about two schemes, two stabs at using the millennium as a fresh start, and how one of those plans got gobbled up by the other. It takes place in Moscow, Russia. So I had been out of the country for three months on a fellowship writing a book. 
And I really, really missed Moscow, and I really wanted to get home for New Year's. In 1999, Masha Gessen is a journalist in Russia, asking the big questions, like would capitalism work in Russia after the Cold War? Could they even do democracy? Could they make it stick? All great questions that Masha doesn't really care about right now. Because right now, a couple days before New Year's, she wants the answer to a different question. Could she make someone fall in love with her? So I was like madly in love and this woman was in Berlin and I was in Vienna and like pining for her. And she was this very cool woman. She was just, she was just very cool and I was very much in love. And so she had a plan, the first plan in our story, to try and seal the deal. She was in Berlin and I was going to like kidnap her or lure her to Moscow with me. And it was going to be like a turning point in our relationship. She was going to go back to Moscow with me for New Year's and never leave. So this is your plan. This was my plan. I'm already rooting for you. Thank you. I left Vienna. I picked her up in um, Bratislava and we drove to Moscow through the snow. As it turns out, epic snow on the week-long road to Russia. Every place we tried to stop, every hotel was closed because it was Christmas. Am I the only one imagining them both in giant fur hats? And so we had to keep driving through the snow. And she didn't drive, so I was driving. Oh, my, my windshield wipers stopped working. <laughs> so I had to ask her to hang out the window and keep, and keep cleaning the snow <laughs> off of my windshield. By the time we got to Moscow, my car finally choked on all the gasoline that we'd been filling up with in Ukraine. Like, we had to push it the last couple hundred meters. Oh, my gosh. Um, but I was also I was just so happy to get to Moscow. Now, Masha had picked New Year's to pull off her lady heist for a reason. So, first of all, New Year's is the biggest holiday of the year. Their New Year's is like our Christmas, but without God. The Bolsheviks had nixed God at the revolution. So Russians put up a New Year's tree. What do they call the tree? Do they, does it's, it have a it's called a New Year's tree. It's a, in, it's in a New Year's fir tree. It's a Novogodnya Yolka. Thank you. You put presents under it. It's a big family holiday. You generally gather you know, your clan around you. So uh, it really is Christmas. It is. Well, it's, except it's New Year's. Right. Uh, <laughs> presents and black caviar and good cheer and the whole festive day always culminating in the same thing. So people usually gather on New Year's Eve, sit down at the table, and then they watch the president's address just before midnight. This is Boris Yeltsin giving the speech the year before in front of Red Square. It happens every year and everyone watches. And the speech, it had to be perfectly timed. So the president has to finish in time for the clock to strike midnight. From the bells in the Tower of the Kremlin. And this year, this was the big one. I mean, it's so symbolic if you think about it. You know, the millennium and this country that has never had a peaceful transfer of power before. There were supposed to be elections coming in June. Yeltsin's term limit was up. But lately, he had been making a lot of people really nervous. He was acting unpredictably. He was getting drunk in public, like severely soused. He tried to conduct an orchestra in Berlin during an official visit because he was drunk and happy, having to be propped up by his bodyguards because he's so drunk he can barely walk. Masha arrives in Moscow on the 30th. And whatever happens with the speech, she will be watching, listening to the clock strike midnight at a party 
with her friends, and her new love, who will hopefully be so dazzled by the trip and the gesture and Masha that she'll decide to stay in Moscow with her forever and never leave. But remember, there are two schemes afoot in Moscow tonight. And this is where the second one comes in. So we went to sleep. They oversleep, actually, and are awoken on the 31st by a gobsmacker of a surprise. And my phone rang. Would have been a landline rang probably, I don't know, uh, one o'clock in the afternoon. And it was one of the people with whom we were supposed to celebrate New Year's that night. And she called and said, so is the party canceled? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, because Yeltsin resigned. And I said something to the effect of that being the stupidest prank ever. (laughs) Right, it's not even funny. (laughs) Yeah, like, like, why would you make up a a thing like that? But it wasn't a prank. It was real. Russians were just making last-minute preparations for their biggest holiday of the year when President Yeltsin made his stunning announcement. Out of nowhere, Yeltsin pops up on TV in the afternoon, almost 12 hours before he was supposed to, and says, Yeltsin, out. He decided to resign, that he was tired. He said, I was naive. I thought that we could resolve the legacy of totalitarianism in a single stroke. And then, in the very same breath, does something kind of totally totalitarian. And then he said that there was a new man, a young man, that Russians were placing their hopes in, and he didn't want to stand in his way. Yeltsin practically just points at someone and says, this guy, he's president now, and you're really going to like him. So as a journalist, my reaction was, shit, it's New Year's Eve, he's just resigned, and I don't understand what's going on. And Masha, who was so worried about whether or not her own plan had worked, she would have to switch gears to figure out this one. And this one, too, would end up changing her life forever. Because the guy Yeltsin pointed to is Vladimir Putin. I was in a very tiny minority of people who were just terrified of this guy. But, you know, that said, I didn't think I was going to have to, like, leave the country. It's still early morning in New York as that what-the-f news out of Russia runs across the ticker in Times Square. It's a little before 5 a.m. here in Times Square. Earlier we you are. And people are already taking their place as close to that ball drop as they can get. We begin, uh, as you can imagine, with a tremendous sense of awe from our studio overlooking Times Square here. Before we get back to Moscow and Masha's story, our second New Year's Eve is beginning to unfold in Salt Lake City, Utah. This one all starts with a building in downtown Salt Lake. It was Utah's first skyscraper, actually, eight stories tall built in 1892, before Utah was even a state. Yeah, it's really a neat building. That's John. He's the owner, so he's biased, but it is a neat building. Over the years, it housed a bank, a beer parlor, and now, to the shock and awe of absolutely no one, a Starbucks. But before Starbucks moved in, John renovated. And in the process, a worker noticed a strange gap in between the old walls. Uh, He pushed aside some of the mortar, and that's when he saw the metal box that contained the time capsule. It was placed there in 1959, and it's kind of a funny time capsule in that it's less about the past and more about how they imagined the future back then. 
It's full of letters, with predictions from local muckety-mucks about what the year 2000 would look like. There's a lot of moving sidewalk type stuff and mail delivered by rocket ship. The editor-in-chief of the Salt Lake Tribune really whiffed when he predicted nuclear-powered printing presses, which sounds very high-risk, low-yield to my ears. But among all the stuff in the box, there was an envelope, and it was meant for someone the time capsule people thought very special. In the time capsule was a $50 savings account, and it was to be given to the first baby born in the state of Utah on January 1, 2000. And it would have grown to the amount of $243.77. It's like getting a $2 bill from your grandmother. A small gift, just a little something, but full of genuine hope for this baby. Born in a millennium these people could only imagine. But let's get down to it. $243.77 is $243.77. Who gets the cash? Who was the first baby born in Utah in the year 2000? Who was Utah's millennium baby? Well, it's gonna be a squeaker. 1999, I was 26 or 27, somewhere around there. This is Allison Dunn. She lived in Salt Lake City at the time. I don't remember the exact day of finding out that I was pregnant, but I do remember the radio stations having these like contests to see who could get pregnant with the Millennium Baby. It was around March and they were saying, if you get pregnant now, you could have the Millennium Baby. You could have the Y2K baby. And like it was a legit competition. And I thought that was so dumb. And then she got pregnant. Due date, January 4th, 2000. I was not trying at all, but I knew the possibility existed, but me not being a competitive person, I just didn't think that that would happen. Because what are the odds, right? Pretty low. (laughs) Pretty dang low. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Pretty dang low. But I remember being in McDonald's because I could only eat Egg McMuffins in the morning. Why could you only have Egg McMuffins? Morning sickness. I, I couldn't hold anything down except an Egg McMuffin. <laughs> I don't even like them, but at the time it was it worked. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? I could go for an Egg McMuffin <laughs> anytime, anywhere. I'm more like into the McGriddle now. Uh, I've kind of like moved up. It's a little my, the, the sweet egg... <laughs> for me, the McGriddle. No, the sweetness is, is my, my favorite part. Anywho. And so I'd eat an Egg McMuffin every morning. And I remember being in there and there was this lady that was kind of, she looked kind of, um, she looked a little crazy. But she came up to me and I was obviously pregnant. And she said, you are going to have the Millennium Baby. And I was like, whoa. That must have given you the chills. It did. It, it really legit creeped me out. And the thing is, Allison doesn't even want the Millennium Baby. There was a big New Year's Eve party at my friend's house. I was so excited about it. I did not want to be in the hospital. I wanted to be at the party. But when Allison woke up on New Year's Eve, the baby had other plans. So I'm like, okay, oh shoot. So my plan was just to lay around and not like walk, do much walking so that I could go to the party. Because really, I just wanted to go to the party. So you thought, so you thought, <laughs> so wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Yeah. So you thought, you're like, you said to yourself, Allison, it feels like this baby's on the way, but maybe if I just lay around today, I'll be able to go to the party tonight. <laughs> yes, that was my thinking is like, just get to the party. Just <laughs> do not have this baby, not tonight. It was probably around 6 p.m. I'm like, okay, well, party plans are off. And she is not happy about it until she gets to the hospital. They actually had a, a suite, like all decorated for the Y2K baby. 
The hospital was hoping that they would be home to the big winner, and they were placing all their eggs in Allison's basket. I started kind of getting in the mood, like, okay, well, you know, maybe I want to be competitive. Maybe, maybe this is a good thing. Um, this could, this could happen. Well, yeah, I mean, you're there, right? Like, you're not going anywhere. You might as well hit the bullseye. Right, exactly. Let's, let's get something out of this. <laughs> like, let's, let's win something. <laughs> so as it's getting closer to midnight, are people getting excited? Yeah, people are excited. The nurses are calling around other hospitals, seeing where they rank. You want to know what other horses are in the race. Yeah, exactly. You want to know how many contenders you have. And what, what were they telling you? They're just saying, you know, the, you could really be the one. You could be the one. There's, there's one at, you know, the Conwin Hospital. I mean, but, you know, you could take this. But here's what Allison doesn't know. That other woman at Cottonwood Hospital, she is no ordinary contender. Because that other woman's doctor, this guy, is in it to win it. So I was literally his only candidate for having the Millennium Baby. And this doctor had had the 1980 baby and the 1990 baby. So he was going to be for sure having this 2000 baby. And when Allison finds out about her, oh, it's on. Yeah, it was big time. It was a competition for sure. As both women are short, quick breathing it in the hospital in Salt Lake City, things are heating up in Times Square. In New York, Dick Clark counting down to the new year in Times Square. With a who's who of guest stars straight out of, well, 1999. Special Millennium performances by Enrique Iglesias, Faith Hill, In Faith, Fish, The Bee Gees, Neil Diamond, Harry Connick Jr., Kenny G, Ray Charles, The Eagles, Barry Manilow. While Kenny G polishes that soprano sax for the big party, our third New Year's Eve is about to play out. In Kansas, just a few flat miles from Kansas City in a town called Olathe. There's a Bank of America branch off the main highway there. Although on December 31st, 1999, it was the Bank of America. The lights in the A in the sign out front had recently blown out. Uh, how do you like Olathe? Olathe's okay. It's clean. It's safe. That's Ron. He was a teller at the bank then. He and his wife were expecting their first kid, due on Valentine's Day. Yeah. So we knew we were having a little girl. We had a name picked out. Can I ask the name? Amelia Grace. Oh, yeah, I loved it. Well, I grew up just 10 miles south of Olathe. Becky was the assistant branch manager at the bank. She was looking forward to her plans that night. We used to raise horses, and my husband and I had actually planned on having a midnight trail ride. Oh, wow. Did you have one that you liked to ride in particular? Uh, Sonny was my favorite. He was an Appaloosa. Oh, wow. I rode him, and my husband used to ride midnight. And that was your plan for New Year's Eve? Yes, it was. And on New Year's Eve day, like banks around the world, the folks at the Olathe branch weren't quite sure what to expect. They were basically expecting everything to crash, computers to crash, people to make a run for the bank to withdraw all their funds because they thought they wouldn't be there the next day. In fact, two days before the first major bug-related hitch hit the financial sector in the UK, 20,000 credit card swipe machines failed because of the bug. Not a good sign. 
How people would react today was anyone's guess. So they had extra money in the vault and extra staff on hand. We were slammed literally all day long in about a quarter till five, 10 till five. It really started slowing down. John Ann, the manager, was in the drive-thru helping them while I took care of the tellers in the lobby. John Ann is Ron and Becky's boss. I was in the back in the drive-thru ordering pizza with the staff to be the cool manager that night. and <laughs> Oh, really? You were trying to be the cool manager? Yeah. That you know, I'll out? stay. I'm going to close with you guys. You know, let's get pizza. Yeah, on me. Yeah. It's on John Ann. Yeah, so. But. <laughs> but none of them would get a chance to enjoy that pizza. Literally, I think about 10 till 5, got the last customer out of the lobby. Well, I was uh, there in the lobby in a teller window, and uh, I see this lady walk in. The first thing I thought was I I knew this girl. I worked at the juvenile detention center right after high school. I was like 18 in the kitchen. And so I remembered her from back then. I remembered her. Well, about five minutes to five, this young lady walked in. My desk was literally right there by the front door. Oh, I was actually on the telephone. And before long, Becky is making a phone call she'll never forget. And when I got my daughter, she's like, Dad's not here, he's down back. I says, Angela, I need to talk to your dad. And she's like, he's not here, he's down back. So finally I says, Angela, I'm in the middle of a bank robbery with a gun to my head. Will you please go get your father? Listen, my name is John Ann Kavanaugh. I'm the banking center manager. I have a teller that's being held hostage. Okay. They will shoot a warning shot if they see any police. They'll shoot a warning shot if they hear any Then they're going to shoot my teller. Okay. is what the countdown to midnight sounds like in an Australian robot voice. Three, two, one. The millennium washes over Sydney. Then Beijing. And then New Delhi. Now, Moscow is on deck. 
where people are gathering in Red Square, not knowing what to expect. We're going to go straight to Moscow as our first port of call. And what's been going on? Boris Yeltsin stole the headline right out of the old and new millennium. Twelve hours earlier, President Yeltsin had dropped a bombshell. In a tape addressed to the country, he said he had signed papers transferring power to his chosen successor, Vladimir Putin. 11.56, Moscow time. Four minutes till midnight. Masha Gessen is watching TV, where Yeltsin is supposed to give the traditional New Year's Eve speech. And then this little bureaucrat goes on television. Vladimir Putin appears to give the speech instead. He's at a big wooden desk in the Kremlin, in front of a Charlie Brown Christmas tree with decorations that for sure just came out of a cardboard box in someone's attic. He looks uncomfortable, like he's got to go to the bathroom, like he's going to get up and bolt. And speaks this totally bureaucratic language, completely depersonalized. I think everybody was a little shell-shocked. But it didn't take long for Masha to figure out how Yeltsin's plan to pick his own replacement went down. Yeltsin's legal term limit had been approaching, and he was weak, not just physically, politically. So he was afraid that if the opposition came to power, he was going to be prosecuted for things like illegally dissolving parliament in 1993 and then shelling parliament, his own parliament, with artillery when they refused to disband. And people died. So I mean, there's stuff mm. to prosecute him for. So he was looking for somebody who would guarantee him immunity from prosecution. And that's how he stumbled upon Putin. And then a couple of weeks before New Year's, they hatched this plan for Yeltsin to resign early so that there would be an early election for which no one would have time to re- prepare, and Putin would basically be a shoo-in. Because if a president resigns, new elections have to happen in 90 days, instead of in June, like they were supposed to. Putin launched his campaign on December 31st, and nobody else was going to be able to launch theirs until mid-January. And Putin gets to give the kickoff speech of all kickoff speeches, ushering Russia into the third millennium. And leaving zero doubt that he is in control now. And then he goes into this quick sort of speech saying, you know, it's all legal, you're going to be protected. And it's a real sort of us against the world kind of posture where Yeltsin said, we did what we could. And Putin is like, we have a fortress, we have an army, we've dug the trenches. And the Russian people buy it, they're in. The tough guy talk of strength and stability, it resonates. But not for Masha. I just really wanted people to understand what a threat he was in the present. Did you understand then how much your future in Russia would change based on what had happened that day? I, I don't think I understood it fully. But, you know, that said, I didn't think that 12 years later he was going to make uh, homophobia the cornerstone of his politics. I mean, that was like the last thing on my mind. Is that why you left? Yeah, I uh, I ended up having to leave because um, the Kremlin started this anti-gay campaign and I was personally targeted and they were threatening to take my kids away. In my opinion, if you served in the KGB, you were the scum of the earth and you were beyond redemption. I dare say I was right. civilized society 
But that's the future, still just a feeling she has, as she watches the speech on TV at her New Year's party with the woman she loves. And sure, it's cold outside, but it's warm in here, and the vodka makes it more so. The lights on the New Year's tree and old Anxine and all that good stuff. How was the party that night? I remember I was so happy. I was like so madly in love. That was that was the biggest thing. Which probably brings you to your question about what happened with my project of kidnapping them. <laughs> remember, this all started when Masha stole her love interest from Berlin and drove her to Moscow for New Year's, hoping the gesture would be an irresistible beginning to a romance. So it worked out. It did. It did. She stayed in Moscow with me. and uh, Oh, wonderful. By October 2001, we had two kids. Oh, my gosh. You weren't screwing around. They're very large people now. And as they watched Putin finish his speech that night, he times it perfectly. As the bells in the Kremlin announce the new millennium in an even newer Russia. What is left now of the former Soviet Union have decided they prefer a man whose great advertisement is strength and power in the Kremlin, currently fighting a war in Chechnya to lead them as the president. After midnight arrives in Moscow, Paris comes an hour later. With fireworks shooting off the Eiffel Tower in every direction. And then London where they have their own big bell to ring. But in America, it's still early. 4.50 p.m. Central Time, Olathe, Kansas. It's still a little over seven hours till midnight here. But for the people who work at that Bank of America, right off 35, the New Year's Eve they plan to have horseback rides and family stuff, it just went out the window. A woman has just walked in the front door. She's wearing a Kansas City Chiefs jacket, a green hoodie, white sweatpants, and tennis shoes. She's wearing gold wire-framed glasses and her hair in a ponytail. In one hand, she's got an empty Tommy Hilfiger duffel bag, blue. In the other, a nine millimeter Ruger, silver. She was small. I don't even know if she was five foot two. This is Ron, the bank teller. You know, look like under other circumstances, she'd, you know, be a nice person, you know, if she had a smile instead of a gun, you know. She came in waving the gun. And points it right at Becky, the assistant manager. Yeah, she came in waving it because my desk was literally right there by the front door. But Becky is looking at the robber and thinking, I can take her. You're in the army? Yes, sir. I was in military police. And she teaches Taekwondo. I can take her out with a swift jumping round reverse back kick, but what happens if I screw up and somebody else gets hurt? Right. So I just did what she told us to do. I had told my tellers in the drive-thru to pull their bait. John Ann, the bank manager, is watching all of this happen from security monitors by the back office. 
What does that mean, pull their pull bait? Pull bait, you, every single drawer has bait. So if you pull your money, it'll set the alarms off, a silent alarm. Next thing I know, here comes all my employees with their hands in the air and she's got a gun on them and says she wants the vault. And I'm like, she wants everything in the vault. And um, How much is in the vault? At that time, it was quite a bit, a lot more than we normally have. Because of Y2K? Yeah. Because banks needed enough to cover a possible bank run. The perfect night to rob a bank. If you're good at it. Becky, the assistant manager. How is she doing as a bank robber, did you think? She was stupid. Really? Yeah. Because bank robbers want to get in and get out. And going to the vault takes time. Something the robber has very little of now that the silent alarm has been triggered. She had a bat, uh, a duffel bag. And so we're filling it up and it's getting full. And I'm like, it's not all going to fit in here. And I go, do you really want the ones? I mean, I was almost you know, like, really? And she's like, I want everything. And I'm like, well, okay. And so I'm trying to fit it in, all in. Mistake number two. The bag gets so heavy with ones that she can't even pick it up. In fact, there's only one person there who can. And then she goes, I'm taking Ron. I'm going to take Ron as hostage. How heavy does money get? Um, pretty heavy. And so she has you carrying the bags. Mm-hmm. She was going to have me go with her wherever. And so we got it all in, you know, pretty much. And then we're walking out and she says, I want the videotape. That's the tape from the security camera and the robber's third mistake, more wasted time. So it was the old-fashioned VCR, and you had to push three different buttons in a combination for it to eject it because it was a built-in security feature. Right. I couldn't remember (laughs) the combination to eject the tape. So I'm pushing every single button on this stupid machine, and I'm like, it's not coming out. And she's like, I want the tape. I mean, I literally pulled the whole unit off the wall and said, okay, here. Oh, my and gosh. She's like, and you just tried to hand her the whole thing? Yeah, I tried to hand her the whole VCR, like, just to get her out. <laughs> and she's like, I want the tape. I'm like, it's inside of it. And she's like, no, I want the tape. So I'm literally throwing it, this VCR on the floor, smashing it and everything, trying to get the tape dug out. She finally gets it out and gives her the tape. And the robber leads Ron by gunpoint, lugging her bags of money toward the lobby and her waiting car out front. Except? As soon as we walk out and we can see the front doors, you see police everywhere. And they were just everywhere. (sighs) And um, because nothing was happening on the Y2K, so they all were, like, excited that something was going to happen. They had something to do. (laughs) And now it's not just a bank robbery anymore. It's a hostage situation. You are watching KSHB-TV, Kansas City. This is NBC 41 News at 6. Good evening. We'll begin our Millennium coverage in just a moment, but first, some breaking news. Olathe police tell us there's been a bank robbery at the Bank of America. On the phone is a woman who saw it happen. She joins us now. Can you tell us what you saw? There's a ton of snipers across the street in the grass, and they've blocked off all of the ways to get out. So you're you're talking snipers. You're talking about police snipers. Yes. And what are police telling you as far as... They're not telling us anything. They're all standing up, up waiting to see what goes on at the bank. And then the phones in the bank start ringing. It's the police. All the conversations were recorded. Move the police car across the street. John Ann, the manager, is trying to get the cops to get out of there. So the robber will get out of there. So the 16 hostages in the bank can get out of there. Watch them. Can you please get them out of the premises? Get them out of everywhere. Ma'am? If she walks out with him and she sees any police anywhere around, we lose our tower. Okay, ma'am. Ask them if they will get on the phone the phone and speak to me. 
Do you want to get on the phone to speak with them? No. And right there, the pattern is set for the rest of what's shaping up to be a very long night. John Ann and Becky and Ron become the go-betweens between the police and the robber. Can they talk to you? Can you talk on that phone? She won't talk on the phone. Okay. I mean, if you want to tell her that you don't believe her. It becomes a literal game of telephone, frustrating and ridiculous. You know, we need to talk to her to, to see what her emotional state is or, you know, something to that effect. They yeah. said they need to talk to you to find out your emotional state and she's not talking to you? Okay. Tell her, you know, that, that would be our minimum requirement that we talk first before... They said that would be their minimum requirement that they talk first. That's BS and you know it. She took a course on it, guys. She's not stupid. Okay. Well, you can tell her I've been doing this for 30 years, and that's the way we do it. For 30 years, and that's the way they do it. She does not. She knows what you're trying to do. She's not going to talk to you. Okay. She said when she means move, she means far. She has nothing to lose. Okay. What, where we're at is she knows we're not leaving. I mean, it's obvious that that's what's where we're at and like I say this may be an all-night thing uh, you need to prepare yourself for that 7 p.m. Central Time two hours in they find out the bank robber's name is Nikki she's 23 and from the next town over oh and also Nikki is super nice she was sitting in the break room smoking her cigarettes with all of us kind of chit-chatting like she was our best friend she was very calm and trying to be almost apologetic about that she's, you know, messing up our New Year's. Did she say why she was doing it? She just said that she picked us because she went to another bank and they were too busy. And so we gave her her first credit card, so she thought of us. I'm like, well, that's great. I'm glad we could help you out. That sucks yeah. that you're not even like yeah. her first choice. Yeah, we weren't even her first choice. And then at one point she says, okay, y'all need to call your family and tell them to cancel your New Year's Eve plans. Yeah, no kidding. And stood with the gun to our head while we made the phone call. Nikki tells them how she's trying to start fresh. To drive a stake through the heart of a really crappy year and start the new one off with a clean slate. Not counting armed robbery, of course. She told us about different things in her personal life. Like what? That she had just lost a child. Uh, I think uh, the baby was uh, miscarried. Because she was telling us all about the baby she lost and how she had about a half a million dollars in gambling debt. Are you starting to like her? I don't know that I really disliked her. Obviously, I didn't trust her. But yeah, she's starting to seem more human at this point. But she, she was nice. Nikki has just one demand for the police. She just kept wanting to talk to her boyfriend. She goes, once I talk to my boyfriend, this will all be over, I'll leave. Her boyfriend's name is Sean. But Nikki doesn't just want to talk to Sean. She wants to see Sean face to face. She wants to see the real Sean. Okay. And to talk to the real Sean. This is Becky on the phone with the police. Okay. And she'll let all you guys go. She can do that. And that's, that's, she said she'll start by letting one person go. Okay. We'll, uh, if she lets somebody uh, go, we'll let them talk on the phone. All right, hold on. 
She wants to see him in the parking lot first, and she'll have someone okay. at the front door waiting uh, to come outside. Okay, that's not going to happen. She, then we're going to be here all night. Okay, and tell her we're prepared. And she's trying to get somebody, she's trying to get this resolved as soon as she can before the end of the year. All the poor lady wants to do is talk to this guy and see him in the parking lot. Okay. Please. 10 p.m. Central Time, five hours in, two hours till midnight. A few hostages have been released. And a few have snuck out the back. Nikki, the robber, never even knew they were there. We're down to five hostages. This is Sean Ann. This is Sean. Yeah, this is Sean. Okay, it says he said it's him. The cops finally put Nikki's boyfriend, Sean, on the phone. Hello? Hi. Hello? And so Nikki finally decides to get on the phone herself. This is them. Are you being monitored? Can you talk? Are you being monitored? Yes, I am. No, I want a clear line. Nikki, listen, they agreed to let me talk to you. Please talk to me. Please, I love you, Nikki. Okay. I don't want, I don't want anything to happen, any, anything further than what's happened. I don't want to happen, all right? Nothing's gonna happen I want you to if let they me. let you see me face to face and then it all ends. The only way they're gonna do that is if you let the people go. Not all of them. I made a deal with the people here that if I got to talk to you, two more gets to go. So hold on, okay? Okay. Becky, you sure you don't want to go? Becky, I think you need to go. Becky refuses. She won't leave unless they all do. So, Nikki lets two others go. Tell them that Kathy and Sarah are being let out now. Kathy and Sarah are being let out now. Hold on. Okay. And that leaves three hostages left. Thank you for doing that. I was gonna do it in the beginning, but they wouldn't listen. If you get your ass in the parking lot, you get the FBI off this stupid whatever deal they're on, okay? Get your butt down the parking lot. Let me see you face to face and talk to you face to face. The other three can go before New Year hits here. New Year hits in two hours. Yeah, happy New Year. <laughs> Screw you. With two hours till midnight, the three remaining hostages, John Ann, Becky, and Ron, they hunker down. And someone flips on the TV in the break room. So you were watching people celebrate on television? Yeah. And we actually saw it because they had, um, they were showing Times Square. And you could see Bank Robbery, Bank of America, Olathe, Kansas, something like that was flashing across on the Times Square billboard. Oh, no, you're kidding me. Uh Uh-uh. Can you believe it? We're on Times Square. It would be funny if you weren't, if there wasn't a gun to your head. Exactly. Every eye is on the ball at 6 minutes and 40 seconds to ball drop and counting down. As the hostages watch their own story spelled out on that news ticker in front of millions of people about to lose their shit at midnight in Times Square, a little farther west, in Salt Lake City, Utah, two women on opposite sides of town still have a lot of pushing left to do. 
A little before 10 p.m. Mountain Time. Temperatures are in the, the mid-30s. Uh, Allison Dunn watches Times Square on the TV from the bed in her hospital room. She's getting ready to not only push a little body out of her regular-sized body, but also she's going to try to do it on cue. I remember around 10 o'clock, I was like, okay, okay, we're getting close. Like, this could really be, you know, this could make or break it, you know. Remember what the crazy lady at McDonald's told her? She said, you are going to have the Millennium Baby. And I was like, whoa. She thought it was ridiculous, of course. And now, here she is, in the hospital, dilating. Two hours till midnight. It was crazy. But what Allison doesn't realize at that moment is that across town at Cottonwood Hospital, the contractions are getting closer and closer for someone else, Natalie Shepard. So I was in labor for a long time. Natalie's not the freakout type. She's calm, she's collected, she's in labor, but she still looks good. She's wearing makeup. She was a hairstylist, a 1999 hairstylist. And of course we had the big hair going on as everyone did, with the big claw coming off the front, you know. I'm what sure did you, you call saw it, a the... claw? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it is a claw. Sorry. Yeah, we just <laughs> looked at a picture. It's a claw. Yeah. You look nice, though. Good. When Natalie arrived at the hospital, she was greeted with two surprises. The first is a bummer, but a common one. Her doctor is out of town, so he can't be there for the birth. So you show up, and your doctor's not there, and Dr. Terry walks in the room? Yep. Dr. Stephen Terry. Dr. Stephen Terry, who would deliver Natalie's baby, he is the second surprise. A surprise that's a bit more unsettling because Dr. Terry has an unusual hobby. Did you know at the time that he had delivered the first baby in Utah in 1980 and the first baby in Utah in 1990? I didn't know that probably until an hour before I had her because the nurse that was on call, she also helped with the 1980 and 1990 babies. Okay, so the doctor has, he has a thing for this. Oh, and yeah. And the nurse has a thing for this. Are you like... Well, I think I do that he wanted the claim to fame, for sure. Natalie is almost ready to deliver. But when Dr. Terry checks her out, he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, I think we can do this. If you just keep that baby in a few more hours, we might be able to win this thing. And Natalie, being the team player that she is, says, Hell no. I want this baby out. But... But her husband, now her ex... He was like, I think we can do this. Let's try to do this. Was your ex-husband a competitive guy? Oh, he very much is. So, oh, man. I know. That's why we didn't last long. <laughs> but she agrees. They're going for it. She's just got to keep that baby in a little bit longer. The weather tonight is perfect. I mean, look at them. They're not all bundled up. You can't even hardly see the... 11.55 p.m., back in Allison's hospital room. Uh, we really got to start pushing this baby out because this is, you know, this is killing me. And as Allison starts pushing, people are gathering around in the room, and they are pumped. At that point, I'm just like, whatever. You've got all the administrative team in there, like, cheering, and had my mom and my husband and all these strangers and whatever. Because she's all doped up and dilating and catching up with Dick Clark. And that I was like literally watching the ball drop as it was happening. The ball is beginning to move. They can feel it. This is on replay, of course. They're two hours behind. And like that was my focus, which was weird. 
Like I wasn't really focusing on the baby, I was <laughs> just like watching the ball drop. And Allison is pushing harder and the ball is dropping farther and the crowd is going crazier. Going, oh my gosh, this is, this is it. This is happening. <laughs> Allison has a baby boy, seven pounds, 13 ounces. They name him Cameron. And like literally within his birth certificate literally says, you know, zero, zero, zero point zero one, like literally one second after midnight. So the hospital was like, yeah, we won. We won. There is no way. There is no way we're going to find anyone else that was that close. The lady in McDonald's was right. Yeah, he, she was right. Like she was psychic. She was she was legit. Like, as far as we knew, we were the ones. We were literally a second <laughs> after midnight. Like, you can't beat that. Yeah, but let's back up a second. Because while that was happening, across town, just minutes to midnight, Natalie's baby is running a little behind. And we were ready to go. But it's still at that time, you know, she wasn't coming out. And that's why they were on top of me trying to push her out. This is Natalie's birth video. When she says the nurse was on top of her trying to push the baby out, she is being 100% literal. It is like a toddler trying to jack up a car. Just all her weight on Natalie trying to push that baby out. Like the nurses are sweating, they are working. Natalie's pushing and the nurses are pushing on Natalie and the doctor is pushing to time it exactly right. You can even hear the nurses counting to get the timing right to the second. But this next part, this is the part that birthing as sport enthusiasts will be debating forever. Listen to this. The baby's crying, she's here. I mean, she probably came out, it was probably 11.59, 50 probably, and he suctioned her nose um, to get her to breathe. But it's not New Year's yet. The nurse is still counting. There's a few seconds to go. The actual birth doesn't happen, or the time doesn't happen until every part of the body is out. So So Dr. Terry kind of leaves the baby in there from the baby ankles down for just a few more seconds. And then, right at midnight, bloop. Seven, eight, nine. Right there. One half second. Oh, Good job. Is it a girl or a boy? It's a girl. All right. <laughs> so what time is your baby born? A half second after midnight. A half second. Half second. <laughs> That's a photo finish. Yes, it is. And it certainly was. I'll be honest, it was kind of like eh, a little sketchy. Across town, Allison had about half an hour to bask in millennial triumph before it was snatched away by a half second. We didn't really make a big deal out of it, but we know that he is the, he really was born a second after midnight and she, this other baby, was not. 
that. <laughs> we know that. Um, <laughs> I didn't really care. Yeah, you have a baby. You have a beautiful baby, right? Yeah, we have a baby. Exactly. What matters is that we had, you know, we had a beautiful baby, and we didn't really care. But still. You can't say that you were a half second after midnight. Like, the clocks don't even register a half second. You can't even say that. Her son Cameron is 18 now. Okay, is, is Cameron there? Yeah, Cameron's right here. Okay, thanks. Hey man, how are you? I'm good. Is this the number two baby of the millennium? Uh, this is number one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the first boy, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's got to count for something. And Natalie's baby? A beautiful baby girl. Eight pounds, seven ounces. Her name? It's Brindley Millennia Shepherd. Brindley Millennia gets the time capsule money for the first baby born in the millennium, $243.77. She gets the glory, and she gets the odd middle name she'll have to explain for the rest of her life. Her dad and I don't know how to spell, so her middle name is only spelled with one N. Natalie. I know! (laughs) Thank you, Dick Clark, very much for a wonderful evening and a wonderful celebration. Wherever you were, we hope it was the biggest and best celebration people here waited for 19 hours. 12.30 a.m. Central Time. Midnight has come and gone. It's officially New Year's Day in Olathe, Kansas, as the hostage situation enters its seventh hour. You know how much I love you, right? You know this could have ended at 7 o'clock or whenever you got here? But they're following their stupid rule book too much. Nikki the robber is talking to Sean, her boyfriend, on the phone. Nikki still has three hostages left, even though they're all kind of friends now, but also totally not. Nikki, I just don't want you to get hurt. I'm not going to get hurt. No one's going to get hurt. Ask them. I've not hurt them. You know I can't hurt anyone. I know that. I can't imagine you doing that. Exactly. I can't hurt anyone. I feel bad enough pulling the gun on Ron. Why don't you just turn yourself in? You don't realize how much deep shit I'm in. No, Nikki, I realize that, but you know what? You haven't done anything wrong yet. You know, you haven't hurt anybody. No. I mean, all right, you screwed up and wasn't a smart thing to do, but it's not the end of the world, Nikki. It's not that bad. Not as bad as it seems, believe me. Yeah, right. I'm serious. I don't know. It's, ah. Uh, They're concerned because well, there's guns in there. They know there's two guns in there. There's one. Guys, how many guns in here? Thank you. One. Okay, there's one gun. Hold on. Tell, tell them all they can leave right now. No. Becky's going. Becky, do you want to go? Becky? Becky, Becky, go, go. Becky's going. Hold on. Becky, go. At that point, uh, she told me to grab my purse and leave the building. So I grabbed my purse and left. That leaves just two hostages left: John Ann and Ron, and Nikki, the bank robber. Nikki, the now very angry 
bank robber. Now I'm down to two. So FBI, bite my ass and get your ass down here, Sean. And do not piss me off. You are the only one that I'm going to talk to. And if the FBI don't like it, kiss my fucking ass. Get your ass down here, Sean. So this can be all over with. I want it to be over with. That's all I want, you know? I want you to be safe. And I want to see you again. And I don't I want to spend the rest of my life with you, Nikki. Well, it's going to be kind of hard while I'm in jail. Next time on Surviving Y2K, New Year's Day. Hi, is this Ron? Yes. Ron, this is Nancy. I'm with the police department. Okay. How are you? Everyone say hi to Nancy. Nancy is the lucky bastard who gets to bring this hostage crisis to a close. And Nikki, she does not make it easy. Well, then I guess it's going to be a while. Okay, until I talk to Sean, that's it. Bye. Nikki, don't hang up. Don't hang up. But it does end, eventually. And not the easy way. Ron, are you there? John Ann? John Ann, what's going on? John Ann, is anybody there? Is anybody there? Somebody pick up the phone. Headlong is produced by Henry Milofsky and me, I'm Dan Taberski. Our associate producers are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Ben Phelan. Ben also does our research and fact-checking. Joel Lovell is our editor. Original music by Mark Gordon and John Hancock. Our theme song is Burns by George Fitzgerald, courtesy of Domino Recording and Publishing Company. In this episode, you also heard the sweetest Connie Francis singing Happy New Year, Baby, words and music by Howard Greenfield and Neil Sadaka, courtesy of Universal Music, UPMG, and Sony ATV, EMI, and Roundhill Music which is a mouthful, but totally worth it for that song. Music clearance by Dan Kanishkowi. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. The team at Topic Studios is Tal Malad and Lisa Leingang. Special thanks to Adam Pincus. You can also find Headlong on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow us and check out more podcasts from Topic at topic.com slash podcasts. And quick favor, if you're enjoying the show, as always, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It means a lot to me. And it's also a nice way to let other people discover the show. Thanks. We'll see you back here next week, day one of the new millennium. If you're enjoying the show and can't wait to hear more episodes, you can binge listen the entire season ad-free right now on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com slash headlong and use promo code HEADLONG.